Okay, everyone, let's open our Bibles together. And if you will, go with me once more to the book of Jude, second to last in your Bibles. And we'll start here in verse 8 here in just a second. Again, Jude is only one chapter, and so we don't really uh, use chapter references when we go to books with just one chapter. Jude is one of those. So Jude, verses 8 through 16 here in just a moment. Now, have you ever been in a conversation and someone was talking about something and you didn't understand it at all? You didn't understand anything about what they were saying. But have you ever been in that situation and then you made the mistake of acting like you did? You ever done this? I have done this to my shame and embarrassment many times in my life. Talking about something and, and you just, because you're, you're afraid of what they might think of you. You want to you wanna be seen as smarter than you are, more knowledgeable than you are. You, you're going to act like you understand exactly what they're talking about. And so per, perhaps they ask you a little clarifying question. You're like, oh yeah, I, I, know. I know. I know about that. I know where that is. I know what you're talking about. You know, I, every now and then I'll sit in the lobby and I'll talk to the men of the church, you know, before Sunday night, Wednesday night service, something like that. And it's, it's pretty often they're talking about some place out in Colombia or out in the country and, and they're describing it. And they're, they're saying things like, oh, yeah, you know where uh, like 85 meets 144 and it's out by the old oak tree where the store used to be and so and so used to live there. And I'm, I'm just like, yeah, uh-huh. Uh huh. I mean, I must have the dumbest look on my face. I have no clue what they're talking about. But I imagine this happens to you, too, sometimes. Uh, maybe it's like a contractor comes over to the house. You ever have this? And they're talking to you about your air conditioning or something like that, plumbing, and giving you all these words that you don't understand, just nodding your head. Perhaps it's a, a doctor trying to explain what's going on inside of your body, using all of that jargon that we don't understand. Perhaps it's a preacher trying to, under, trying to explain the middle of Jude to, to people, you know. But in our text today, in our text today, we're going to see how the ignorance of the things of God will lead to all kinds of problems and sins. Yet at the same time, a Holy Spirit-given understanding of God and his ways will lead you to worship and to peace and to life. Let me show you what I mean. Jude, starting in verse 8, we'll read down to verse 16 for our text today. This is God's word. Jude writes, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, the sermon today is entitled, as you'll see on the screen, Ignorance and Understanding. After hearing what I just read, some of you might be thinking, I'm on the ignorance side of that two-sided coin, so to speak, because I don't understand a lick of what you just read. And I want you to know if that's you, that's okay. That's okay if that's where you're at this morning. Remember, Peter himself wrote at the end of 2 Peter that there were things in Paul's letters that were hard for him to understand. And that's Peter talking. This past week, during my research on this text, I came across Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Jude, the great Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest histories in the, or the greatest preachers in the history of the church. And Spurgeon, commenting on the part here in our text about Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses, he wrote, To what does this refer? I am sure I do not know. And if you're in the same boat as Charles Spurgeon, you find yourself in good company. But what you will find as you read through the Bible, not just Jude, but as you read through the Bible, what you will find is that even in the hard-to-understand parts, there are very practical, simple lessons that God has given all of us. As you go through your Bible, there might be parts that are hard for you to understand. But if you are willing to slow down, and if you are willing to engage your heart as you read, there will always be some lesson, some blessing, some encouragement, some challenge that you can clearly see and take away and apply to your own life. And that's what we're going to try to do here today. Now, first, we need to ask the question, because we come in at verse 8 here, we need to ask the question, who are these people that he's talking about? You see that in verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, and he goes on to talk about all that they are doing. Who are these people? This will especially be confusing if you weren't here last week. He refers to them in verse 4. So, Verse 8 is referring back up to the people that he mentions in verse 4. Look there with me real quick. He says in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In Jews' church, in Jude's church, there were people that had come into the church secretly, cunningly, if you will, and they're trying to deceive others and lead them away from Jesus and from his words. These are the people that Jude is talking about in our text today. They're attacking the church from within. They are the wolves that Jesus talked about in sheep's clothing. And Jude has some very strong words for them. Did you notice? Very strong words, particularly in verses 11 through 16. All of those verses right there, he's piling on the references for how these people are evil, how these people have evil desires. They're seeking to lead people away from the Lord. They're inciting the anger of God. Specifically, look with me at verse 11. In verse 11, he he compares them to three different uh, sinful groups of sinful people, if you will, in the Old Testament. 
So first he starts off and he says, they walked in the way of Cain. That's all the way back in Genesis 4. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain refuses to trust God, to believe in God. And he gets so upset about God accepting Abel's sacrifice over his, he kills his brother out of jealousy. And then it says they, they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam is a character that we meet in Numbers 22 through 24. If you want to go read that later, that'll give you some insight into what he's doing. But Balaam, if you remember, tried to curse the Israelites in, in kind of a supernatural, evil kind of way. He, he tried to curse them for monetary gain, trying to get paid for doing that stuff. And then... It says they perished in Korah's rebellion. You'll read about this in number 16, where Korah and a group of others rebelled against the authority that God had instituted in the people group of the Israelites that were wandering in the wilderness. They didn't, they didn't want Moses and Aaron to be an authority over them any longer. And so they tried to rebel against it, and they ended up perishing on the spot because the Lord put them to death. And so we, we don't have time to get into all the details of these, but through these examples in the Old Testament, you will see, if you go study them, you'll see all of the same errors and sins that Jude is consistently speaking of here in his letter. Sins like sensuality, sexual immorality, rejecting authority, refusing to trust God. And it shows us that these, these errors, these sins, they're as old as humanity itself. They're as old as humanity itself. In fact, you can go back to Adam and Eve. You can go back to Adam and Eve and the story of Genesis 3 and find the exact same sins that Jude is speaking of here all the way back there in one form or another. But specifically this morning, I want you to key in with me on verse 10. Everybody look at verse 10. I think, I think verse 10 is the key to this whole section. Verse 10, it's kind of the theme verse. He says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So, so two different things he's saying about them. They blaspheme what they don't understand. They're destroyed by what they do understand. Let's drill down on those two ideas in turn. First, they blaspheme what they don't understand. They blaspheme what they don't understand. Now, if you remember last week, we mentioned how 2 Peter really helps us to understand Jude because those two letters are so similar, uncannily similar, actually. And so I want to read to you the parallel passage in 2 Peter, and it's going to help us understand what we're looking at today in Jude. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. He's talking, Peter is, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And then he says about them, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. There's that phrase we've already seen. Whereas angels, he says, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Now notice how in both of these passages he speaks of, Peter and Jude both speak of, blaspheming the glorious ones. Blaspheming the glorious ones. How are we to understand that? In, in our text and in Peter's, it seems that this is not simply talking about us blaspheming angels, but it's about people blaspheming fallen angels. 
demons. That was especially clear in the, the Peter passage, but it's also evident here in the example that he uses. See at the end of verse 8 how he says they blaspheme the glorious ones, and then he goes in, into this, this really interesting example of the archangel Michael contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses. And it says, Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan himself, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now it's not entirely clear what he's getting at, right? Not entirely clear. How, how are we to understand this blaspheming of fallen angels, this blaspheming of, of demons? It's understandably confusing. The closest parallel I could think of when I was thinking about this was David refusing to speak ill against King Saul, even though Saul had turned evil and was trying to put David to death. He was trying to murder David. David let the Lord do the work of putting Saul in his place. You remember that? And so instead of David pronouncing a a blasphemous word against who he kept calling the Lord's anointed, Saul was the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul had turned evil, he was still king. David wasn't king yet, and Saul was the Lord's anointed. So I'm not going to speak ill of someone the Lord has put in place as his anointed one. And so we come back to this. Satan and demons, though fallen, were created as glorious by God originally. They were glorious angels created by God. It's immensely sad what happened to them. Now, we we don't want to turn this into some pitying Satan kind of thing. But what we do want to understand from this is that there is something in the way that Michael, the archangel Michael, would not even pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. He was so humble, he would not presume to condemn the devil. He says, the Lord's going to do that. And so whatever it means for us to blaspheme fallen angels, we might not be able to nail down. But we can take away this. People tend to blaspheme what they don't understand. That's the point. People tend to blaspheme what they don't understand. Have you ever heard someone say they didn't care if they went to hell? I'm going to hell and I know it. I don't care. Why would anyone say such a thing? It's because they don't truly understand what they are saying. They don't truly understand what that is. The same is true for the way people speak about the truths of the Bible, about God himself, or about Jesus. Again, Charles Spurgeon is good here. He says, those who revile Holy Scripture are usually persons who have not read the Bible. Makes a lot of sense. Those who speak against God or against Christ, well, it is only because they do not know them. They do not know them. I mean, think about it. In your own interactions with people, those who speak against God and against Christ are only people who who really don't know them. They blaspheme what they don't understand. Because, of course, when you come to truly know and understand God, there's only really two responses, repentance or worship. Those are the only true, proper responses when you come to truly know and understand God. And you could say those two things in different ways, of course, like fear, reverence, humility, rejoicing, thankfulness, etc. But it's really repentance or worship. It's the only true response to coming to really know the Lord. That's what happens when someone truly understands and knows God. But blasphemy comes from a lack of understanding. A lack of understanding. This is exactly what happened with our Lord Jesus 
when he walked the earth and taught the ways of God and performed miracles, right? There were those who did not understand him. And he began to repulse them. They were were taken aback by him. They, They didn't like him. They didn't like his words. They did not seek to understand. And so they eventually blasphemed the eternal son of God. And they had him put to death on a Roman cross. They did not understand him. But if you remember, there was one Pharisee. Even a person among the Pharisees. There was one Pharisee who did come and seek understanding. Do you remember who it was? John 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he came to the Lord and sought understanding. And later in the Gospel of John, we read that that same Nicodemus was one of the people who was taking care of Jesus' body as it was taken down off of the cross and placed in a tomb. Why? Because he had become a believer. He'd become a believer. He'd been converted. Because with humility... He sought understanding. He sought understanding with humility. God in the Bible might seem totally confusing to you. But if you come to Jesus in humility and sincerely seek for understanding, he meets you where you are. He meets you where you are. And slowly but surely, Jesus helps us to realize that it does not take a huge brain or a dizzying intellect to have spiritual understanding. It does not take someone who knows the ins and outs of calculus or quantum physics or what have you to understand the things of God. Spiritual spiritual understanding is a different matter altogether. In fact, it's not really about your brain. It's about your heart. Spiritual understanding is about the heart. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 66, verse 2. God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. So so who's the person that God's going to look to? What kind of person will God look to? What kind of person will God give his favor to? This is the one to whom I will look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the kind of person God wants. It's not really about your brain. It's about right here in your heart. Now, the second part, we're still on verse 10, actually. The second part, remember, the first part was they blaspheme what they don't understand. But the second part right there says they are destroyed by what they understand instinctively. The key word there is instinctively. He says, like unreasoning animals. What do animals do? They just follow their instincts. Blind instinct, right? No no overarching principle, no ideology, just instinct. That's what animals do. We do not instinctively understand the things of God. We don't understand these things instinctively. We are naturally, by instinct, drawn to sin and selfishness. I think we've all experienced this in our lives enough to know that that's true. Experience tells us this is true. We are naturally drawn to sin and selfishness. And if we do not find an understanding of God, we will be destroyed Just like these people, by what we understand instinctively, sin and selfishness. They will destroy us. They will lead. Those things will lead to our eternal destruction. But they will also destroy us in the here and now. Before our death, it will destroy our lives on the earth. Sin and selfishness will lead us to sorrow, to suffering, to frustration, and to despair in this life. 
Do you know what it feels like to live for sin and self? Do you know what that feels like? Do you remember what that feels like for those of you who have come to Christ? Do you remember what it feels like to live for yourself and for the pleasures of sin? What was that like? What did that get you? I'll tell you exactly what it got you. Colossal disappointment over and over and over again. You keep trying to fill this hole inside of you with all of this pleasure and self-centered living and you just remain empty. You remain empty, perpetually empty and sad and ashamed. And sure, there are moments when you can drown those feelings out with something like alcohol or partying or sinful pleasure of whatever kind. But those things always come back, don't they? The shame, the emptiness, they always come back. And slowly but surely, that kind of life, living for sin and self, will destroy you. You see, one of the great promises of the gospel is that God can actually fill the hole in your heart. God is saying to each and every one of us, I can fill the hole in your heart. In fact, only I can fill the hole in your heart. He is the only one who can fill it because he made you like this. He made us like this on purpose. Think about it. It makes the most sense in the world that the the creator of all the universe would make human beings with a hole in their heart that only he could fill so that they might be disappointed in everything else. And Paul says in Acts 17, so that they might reach out for him and make their way toward him, even though he is not far from each one of us. God did this on purpose. He created you this way on purpose so that everything else would not satisfy. Only he would satisfy. The the great African theologian from the fourth century, Augustine, all the way back from the fourth century, he tapped into this. He figured this out. He knew this in his great work confessions which is really just a book of his own prayers he says right in the introduction speaking directly to God he says you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you God made us like this so that everything else would disappoint and so we will be destroyed if we live for the things that we understand instinctively we must find an understanding of God And so the question then becomes, where do we go for that spiritual understanding? Where do we find this understanding of God? Where's the source? Of all the things that Jude says about these people, one of them stands out to me more than the others. And it comes right there in verse 8. It says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. And then it goes on. They're relying on their dreams. In other words, they are relying on subjective personal experience for their understanding. They are relying on their own subjective personal experience for their understanding. I had a dream, and I'm going to trust in that dream to direct my beliefs and my direction in life. Now, you might hear that and say, how stupid is that? How ridiculous is that? But don't be too quick to judge from afar. Beware the tendency that all of us have inside of ourselves to be like that Pharisee who prayed to the Lord and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Beware that tendency. It's always creeping up, especially during sermons and Bible studies. I thank you that I don't have this problem. I thank you that I'm not like 
other men. Now, it's not just the people of Jude's day who are relying on their subjective personal experiences. This happens all the time today, and it happens with Christians. It happens with Christians. Some claim to have a personal word from the Lord. The Lord spoke directly to me. He gave me a message that he hasn't given to everyone else. I had a man call me on the phone at church this past week. And he was talking to me about ministry at first. And usually I listen. Sometimes those things lead to productive conversations and relationships even. But he eventually said, now, now don't, I, I don't want you to turn me off when I say this. He said, God has shown me, and I've got proof that I am the last prophet. And I said, I, I just don't have any time for this, sir. Goodbye. That didn't last long. Right? I, I really have zero time for that kind of thing. He was relying on his own personal subjective experience, which, by the way, was contradicted by the word of God itself. In college, I saw this kind of thing run wild and rampant, and it did all kinds of damage to the believers around us. Because once you start believing that the Lord has spoken some special word to you, you start believing that this kind of experience is more important and certainly more exciting than God's word here. And then you start claiming that God has spoken to you. And then no one has any right to challenge it because it was straight from the Lord, but it was only given to you. So you're the only one who can really know that it was from God. No one can hold you to any kind of accountability. And you see how this creates all kinds of problems. Pretty soon you've got all kinds of other people wondering, why doesn't God speak to me? And then these people who get direct messages from God are lifted up as some kind of new age apostle, guru, what have you. And so some claim to have a special word from the Lord. Some claim to have a a mystical experience or encounter with the Lord. I had a prophetic vision or I went to heaven and came back to write a book about it and charge $10 to anyone who wants to read the story. Brothers and sisters, don't get taken in by this kind of thing. Do not put your trust in the personal, subjective experiences of others. Could God do this kind of thing? Absolutely. God can do anything he wants. We're not trying to put God in a box here. But is it wisdom to put your trust in those things? Is it wisdom to cultivate a heart that is drawn more to those things than to this? Could God do that kind of thing? Absolutely. Has he promised to? No. Which means the possibility exists for these people to be seriously deceived or worse, wicked deceivers themselves. The possibility exists. The source of our understanding must be the external, objective word of God. Don't trust in personal, subjective experiences. Trust in the external, objective Word of God. Dreams and visions and experiences can be misinterpreted. Someone could be self-deceived. They could very well be fake. The Word of God is a firm foundation. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Analyzed and experienced and trusted in by thousands of years of our forefathers in the faith. It is a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. It is outside of us for all of us to examine. It is an immovable rock 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so don't be the kind of person who blasphemes what they don't understand. And don't be the kind of person who is destroyed by what you understand instinctively. Instead, come to Jesus with humility and seek for understanding. A spiritual understanding that does not require a dizzying intellect or a big brain, but only a humble heart and a contrite spirit. Come to Jesus with a desire for understanding and he will give it to you. He will give it to you. Jesus said in John eight thirty two, you will know the truth and the truth will what? It will set you free. The truth. Where's the truth? God's word. God's word is the truth. God's word is where we set our hopes and our trust. It is external, objective, outside of us. And it is a rock that we can place our feet, a firm foundation, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Go to God's word. Seek for understanding with humility, and Jesus will give it to you. It's a good place for us to end. Right now, I want to spend some time, as we do every week, in silent prayer, responding to the Lord. We ask that as we give this time for prayer, that you would spend this time praying yourself, responding to what God has laid upon your heart, whatever that needs to look like for you, whatever business you have to do with God between you and Him. We ask that you would do it now during this time of prayer. After we pray silently, individually for a few moments, we'll come back together and we'll have an invitation time for anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly. For right now, let's pray.